continued attacks and diplomacy in the Middle East. As necessary, we will continue to take action. More angry farmers in Europe as protests spread now to Greece. No food, no future. Slogans from angry farmers protesting rising inflation. And a documentary about Ukraine's fight against the Russian invasion has been nominated for an Oscar. And now, the nominees for Best Documentary Feature Film. 20 Days in Mariupol. Today is Monday, February 5th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I'm Scott Walterman. After the United States struck back following an attack that killed three U.S. soldiers and then on Sunday hit more Houthi targets in Yemen, an announcement that additional retaliatory attacks are likely. Iran-backed forces in the region say they, too, are committed to continuing their attacks against Western interests. A ceasefire proposal is being considered by Hamas as U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken starts another Middle East trip. Here's VOA's Veronica Balderas Iglesias with the details. Even after a U.S.-led coalition successfully struck 36 Houthi targets in Yemen on Saturday, the United States can't rule out more attacks by the Houthis or by Iran-backed militias in the Middle East, warned National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan on ABC's This Week's show. The central purpose of the strikes has been to take away capabilities uh, from the Iranian-backed militias in Iraq and Syria that are attacking our forces and from the Houthis that continue to threaten Red Sea shipping. And we believe they had good effect in reducing, degrading the capabilities of the militias and of the Houthis. And as necessary, we will continue to take action. But the Houthis have vowed to continue their military operations, which they affirm are in retaliation for Israel's war against Hamas targets in Gaza. More than 27,000 Palestinians have been caught in the crossfire and killed, and more than 66,000 injured, according to the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry. Yemeni Minister of State Nabil Mohsan Abu Nashtan. What we see of aggression, seeds, genocide, and a medicine blockade on our brothers in Gaza. Citizens of Yemen, its tribes, weapons, and men are getting ready to face this aggression and do what they can. Israel's military campaign was launched in response to the Hamas terrorist incursion into Israeli territory on October 7. Some 1,200 people were killed in that attack, and 240 more were taken captive. On Sunday, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said 17 out of 24 Hamas battalions have been toppled so far. Most of the remaining battalions are in the southern Gaza Strip and in Rafah, and we will take care of them too. The U.S. is boosting its push for a diplomatic solution to the conflict, with a new visit by U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken to the region. A multi-stage proposal for extended pauses in fighting and the release of hostages in exchange for Palestinian prisoners in Israel is also in the works. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan spoke about the matter on ABC. The president has put his shoulder to the wheel on this. He has spoken to the leaders of both Qatar and Egypt, two countries that are centrally involved in trying to broker this deal. We are in constant contact with our Israeli counterparts on it. And Hamas will have to be willing uh, to say yes 
to an arrangement that uh, brings hostages home. Sullivan noted the deal isn't imminent and no timetable can be provided. His remarks came after the United Nations warned Friday that the Rafah border area in particular is becoming, quote, a pressure cooker of despair for displaced Palestinians in Gaza. Veronica Valderas Iglesias, VOA News, Washington. All right, so there's a lot going on. Joining us now to talk about all of it is Peter Henney, an associate professor at the University of Vermont. His area of expertise is international relations with a focus on Middle East politics. So I just want to start off by talking big picture. Where do you think the situation now stands in the Middle East with all of this activity to date? I, you know, it's um, it's funny, The Economist had an article early in September about how conflict in the Middle East seemed down and things were calm. And obviously, with each additional development, things get more and more chaotic. Uh, with more parties involved, it's just going to get harder to predict, right? Because we've got Israel, Hamas, Iran, the Houthis, and then that Iran-Pakistan exchange that died down. Um, so it's it's worrisome that it's something small could flip into a bigger war. That being said, I think Iran is not interested in a real war with the United States. So they're trying to confine this to their militias. So there is still some uh, some restraint, at least on their side. Yeah, I, I I think you're right. I think like there was even a comment by a single cabinet member from Israel uh, who said something to the effect of he thought that they would get more support in a Trump presidency in their fight with Hamas. So it's down, I think the moving parts are down to single individuals now. Mm, yeah, in terms of Hamas, I mean, you know, the United States has been backing Israel, obviously, but also pressuring it to ease off a bit and move towards the negotiation on the hostages. Uh, you know, and while obviously groups like the Houthis are supportive of Hamas and Iran is, you know, supportive, uh, Iran's been doing a lot of this separately from this from this war. I mean, Iran's support for these militias extends back to America's um, war in Iraq. And so I think it's part of Iran's broader strategic effort to kind of uh, dominate the region. So everybody says they don't want to escalate. And, uh, you know, I, I think that nobody's, you know, lying about that. But... there's so many players, as you pointed out at the beginning of the call, there's so many players right now. How do you, you know, it's difficult to keep a lid on everything that's going on, right? It is, right? So it's tricky, right? Just within Iran, we've got the government, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is semi-autonomous, and then these militias, which, you know, maybe are supported and directed by Iran, but they're not necessarily always going to do what Iran wants. And, and there's a fear that they could um, act on their own, which might have been what happened with the strike on the base, right? It might not have been directed by Iran. Not sure. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, U.S. allies, I mean, Israel has a stated goal under Netanyahu of destroying Hamas, but then there is dissension within Israel with a lot of protests were still calling for him to focus on freeing the hostages and, and, We'll see if anything changes because I mean, his 
primarily goal is to stay in, sorry, Netanyahu's primarily goal is to stay in power in Israel. So no, it is hard. And I, I think it's just the number of, of moving parts should make everyone be careful. And it sounds like the Biden administration is trying that, right? So they launched these airstrikes. Um, they said more are coming. I think Sullivan, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor said, you know, some visible, some not suggesting covert activities, but also making it clear this is not a war against Iran, maybe to give Iran some security, so to speak. Um, Do you think that's why they, um, they telegraphed these attacks for so long? I don't think I've ever remember seeing so many upfront warnings that were coming. I think so. Right. And again, the idea is, you know, you killed U.S. troops. We we have to do something, but make it clear what we're doing. We're trying to degrade the capabilities of these true of these militias, rather than <clears throat> going after Iran directly itself. The question is, though, are are we actually degrading their capabilities, or is it just a punitive strike in the hope of doing something? Um, and this is we see with the Houthi strikes. I, I'm worried that these airstrikes are not actually going to undermine their capabilities. It's just going to inflame things further. Peter Henney, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Vermont. After the U.S. attacks in retaliation for the attack that killed the three U.S. soldiers in Jordan, Iran issued a warning of its own. Here's VOA's Rick Pantaleo. The warning comes just after the U.S. and the United Kingdom launched a massive airstrike campaign against Yemen's Houthi rebels. Speaking on NBC TV's Meet the Press, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says the U.S. strikes against rebels in Yemen did hit the intended targets. We do believe that the strikes had good effect in degrading the capabilities of these militia groups to attack us, uh, and we do believe that uh, that as we continue, we will be able to continue to send a strong message about the United States' firm resolve uh, to respond when our forces are attacked. Rick Pantaleo, VOA News. In Israel, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Sunday that 17 of Hamas's 24 combat battalions have been dismantled, and the rest were mostly in the southern Gaza Strip. He's saying, we will not end the war before we complete all of its goals, the elimination of Hamas, the return of all our hostages, and a promise that Gaza will no longer pose a threat to Israel. Families of Israeli hostages held by Hamas in Gaza held a protest Sunday night outside Tel Aviv's Defense Ministry building, where Netanyahu's cabinet was convening to discuss a possible hostage-release deal with Hamas. Hamas officials are reviewing a proposed ceasefire deal that suggests pauses in Gaza attacks in exchange for prisoner releases. AP correspondent Rika Ann Garcia reports. Senior Hamas officials say that the group is studying a proposed ceasefire deal that would include a stop to the fighting in Gaza and large-scale prisoner release. But the militants appear to rule out some key components. <laughs> A top Hamas leader says in a public statement that their focus is on alleviating the suffering of the people in Gaza by striving for a complete end to aggression. 
But Hamas's numerous conditions clash with a multi-stage proposal that officials from Egypt, Israel, Qatar and the U.S. recently presented. The proposal does not include a permanent ceasefire. Efforts continue for international mediators to close wide gaps between Israel and Hamas. I'm Rika Ann Garcia. Hamas is a U.S.-designated terrorist group. We're following these other stories from around the world. A significant political shift potentially on the horizon in Namibia following the death of President Hege Gangab in office. Gengab was 82 years old, died in the early hours Sunday after a brief battle with cancer. It was announced in an address by the nation's acting president, Negolo Mbamba. The president of the Republic of Namibia has passed on today. The Namibian nation has lost a distinguished servant of the people, a liberation struggle icon, the chief architect of our constitution, and the pillar of the Namibian House. Salvadorian President Nayib Bukela arrived Sunday to the polls to cast his vote, swarmed by enthusiastic supporters. Wildly popular, Bukela has campaigned on success of his security strategy under which authorities suspended civil liberties to arrest more than 75,000 Salvadorans without charges. The detentions led to a sharp decline in nationwide murder rates and transformed a country of 6.3 million people that was once among the world's most dangerous. He is expected to win the election in a landslide vote. Sangalese security forces used tear gas to dispense a small crowd that had gathered in the capital, Dakar, on Sunday to protest the postponement of the February 25th presidential election. President Macky Sall announced on Saturday that the vote would be delayed to an unspecified date due to a dispute over the candidate list, a move that some opposition and civil society groups have, have denounced as an institutional coup. European farmer protests spread to Greece this weekend as angry Greek farmers demanded the government follow through on promises to compensate them for income lost following a spate of severe weather last year. As Anthe Karasava reports from Athens, the farmers took to the streets. No food, no future. Slogans from angry farmers protesting rising inflation, foreign competition and the growing costs of combating climate change. Dumping mounds of chestnuts and apples on the pavement of an agricultural fair, tens of thousands of farmers took to the streets in the northern Greek city of Thessaloniki over the weekend, rejecting, as their leaders put it, tax breaks and a string of other relief measures introduced by the government in Athens. Rizos Maroudas is among the protest leaders. <laughs> These handouts are crumbs, he told protesters. He said, adding, the government may be playing tough, but farmers will prove tougher. 
Agricultural associations in Thessaly, the farming heartland of Greece, are scheduled to meet Tuesday to escalate protests, including setting up blockades across the country's main highways. Much of the farmers' demands echo similar protests that have been gripping Europe for weeks now. But in Greece, farmers want the government to deliver on promises made months ago compensation for thousands of crops and livestock destroyed in deadly floods and rainstorms that battered the farming heartland in September. In a rash of measures recently announced, Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis said the state would settle farmers' overdue power and water bills and that a tax rebate of diesel fuel would be extended for another year. Government spokesman Pavlos Marinakis. This is all the funding the federal budget can provide at this time. If we could offer more, we would, he said. But we don't want to make any phony promises, he added. The government has called on farmers to return to the negotiating table to seek a compromise solution with the prime minister himself. Greece's farmers have snubbed the offer, saying they have no time to spare for what they call a photo op. Antikorasava, VOA News, Athens. VOA's International Edition continues. I'm Scott Walterman. The United Nations' highest court says it has jurisdiction to rule on a request by Kyiv for a declaration saying it is not responsible for Russia's claims of genocide. The justification offered by the Kremlin ahead of its 2022 invasion of Ukraine. Here's VOA's Arash Arabasadi with more. Rescue workers extract bodies in the aftermath of a shelling attack in eastern Ukraine. In this Russian-occupied city in the Luhansk region, Moscow-installed officials say the attack killed at least 28 people in a bakery with at least one child among the dead. Ukrainian officials offered no comment. The news follows Ukraine's claim earlier this past week of sinking a Russian warship in the Black Sea. VOA cannot independently verify the date, location, or circumstances in the video. The Associated Press reporting private security firm Ambry says Ukraine used as many as six sea drones. This time, it was Russian officials offering no comment. It was against this backdrop of increasingly long-range attacks amid a mostly stalled Ukrainian counteroffensive that officials last week gathered at the United Nations' top court. At The Hague in the Netherlands, the seat of the International Court of Justice, or ICJ, the body said it has jurisdiction to rule on a request by Ukraine saying it was not responsible for genocide. Russia used that claim to launch its invasion of Ukraine nearly two years ago. Today is another important day uh, in the International Court of Justice. The European Union last week announced a robust four-year, $54 billion aid package for Ukraine. Meanwhile, at a field hospital just a few kilometers from frontline fighting, injured soldiers arrive in need of medical attention. One soldier describes increasingly closer explosions until one struck his position, saying his leg then moved wherever it liked. And for those stationed on the southeastern front, a visit from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in which he handed out medals to soldiers near a position once occupied by Russian forces. Arash Arabasadi, VOA News. Thank you.
And finally, I know they just handed out the Grammys on Sunday, but I wanted to look ahead to the Oscars for a moment. Because a team of journalists who filmed the devastation of Russia's siege of Maripol and Ukraine are nominated for an Oscar for Best Documentary. Katenia Lusanova has this story for VOA. And now, the nominees for Best Documentary Feature Film. 20 Days in Mariupol. A moment of pride from Stislav Chernow and his team, as their documentary is nominated for an Oscar. But, says Chernow, the recognition for 20 Days in Mariupol is bittersweet. It's a moment to acknowledge that the world cares, uh, and at the same time, the moment to acknowledge that this all happened and this film exists because of the huge tragedy. Produced by the Associated Press and PBS Frontline, the documentary takes a comprehensive, unsparing look at the first weeks of Russia's full invasion. Chernow arrived in the port city of Mariupol with Yevgeny Maloletka and Vasilisa Stepanenko about an hour before the bombardment in early 2022. In the weeks that followed, they filmed the aftermath of strikes, one of which hit a maternity hospital. Chernow says the documentary shows the reality of Russia's war. It just became so much more than just the story of Mariupol. It became the story of all the Ukrainian cities that got destroyed by, by Russian bombs. With the film showing in Kyiv and at international festivals, Chernow says he feels a responsibility to preserve the memory of Mariupol and to represent his country's film industry. The Oscar nomination is a first for Ukrainian filmmakers. His colleague Vasilisa Stepanenko also sees the nomination as a chance to ensure that Mariupol citizens are heard. I remember being in Mariupol, how people said to me that we all forgot about us, we have no voices, everyone will like forgot about us. Stepanenko and her colleagues will find out if 20 Days in Mariupol wins its category at the Academy Awards on March 10th. Katerina Lisunova, VOI News. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of everyone at VOA, thank you so much for joining us. For pictures, stories, videos, and more, follow VOA News on your favorite social media platform and online at voanews.com. In Washington, I'm Scott Walterman. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. At a press briefing in Washington with NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, Secretary of State Antony Blinken declared that NATO is advancing with a sense of urgency and a strong sense not only of unity of purpose but unity of action. He pointed, for example, to the recent approval by Turkey of Sweden's accession to NATO, which follows Finland's accession in 2023. The accession of both Finland and Sweden was far from inevitable. In fact, if you go back a little over two years, no one was talking about it. But in the wake of Moscow's renewed aggression against Ukraine, both countries felt that it was clearly in their interest to defend their people and defend their sovereignty by joining the alliance. Secretary Blinken said he and NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg discussed NATO's unwavering support for Ukraine. Last week, NATO signed a $1.2 billion contract to produce 220,000 artillery shells. 
That's going to help allies restock their own arsenals, and it complements efforts by the United States, by the European Union, by Ukraine, to ramp up defense production. This will make NATO itself and all allies much more resilient for future threats as we move forward. In NATO's assistance to Ukraine, there has never been a better example of burden-sharing, Secretary Blinken noted. The support that the United States has provided to Ukraine has been exceptional, about $75 billion over the last couple of years. But our partners and allies, notably our core NATO allies, have provided more than $110 billion over that same period of time. For Ukraine to succeed and for Russia to know strategic failure, Secretary Blinken said, it is vital the U.S. Congress pass the supplemental budget request that President Joe Biden proposed in October, which includes an additional $61 billion for Ukraine. Without it, simply put, everything that Ukrainians achieved and that we've helped them achieve will be in jeopardy. And absent that supplemental, uh, we're going to be sending a strong and wrong message to all of our adversaries that we are not serious about the defense of freedom, the defense of democracy. And it will simply reinforce for Vladimir Putin that he can somehow outlast Ukraine and outlast us. That is not going to be the case, Secretary Blinken declared. We have to make sure that it's not the case. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 